Um, and I'm really excited about this one again. Jake and I, when we had the chance to think about what we wanted this morning discipleship time to, to be like, we, um, we went to the people that we trust who have helped to shape us. And so week one, um, Jake's wife Amanda and I were discipled by Ivo. Week two is Drew, who was on staff here, shaped a lot of um, what we say and how we say it here, and is Jake's pastor. Week three, we get Nathan Cook. He's my pastor. Um, so I hope that you guys can find this rich and appreciate that these are people who have spoken directly into who I am and into who Jake is. Um, they're voices in our community that we trust and look to. Um, so Nathan, come on up. He and his wife Kim and their family live in Binghampton and have before it was the hip thing to do. Um, and then he is the, the pastor of my house church. Um, I thought that uh, for these three days I get to share with you that I would just um, share a couple of passages of scripture that have been um, informational to me and in scripture passages um, that I keep coming back to kind of over and over again and uh, hopefully they'll be helpful to you guys as well. Um, but this first one is in Isaiah, it's, it's Isaiah 58, 1 through 12, and uh, so I'll read this for us. Um, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continu continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. 
think one of the reasons I really like this passage, um, SOS was very uh, influential to me in my life. It, um, you know, I starting in ninth grade, I started coming to SOS, and uh, I was on summer staff uh, a couple of times in college and in seminary. And um, you know, this last part about being restorer of broken streets, of broken neighborhoods. Um, was something that uh, became very important to me. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I come back to this passage over and over again. Um, but another one is that uh, I had a good friend um, in seminary who really lived this out uh, in front of me and with us. Um, this idea of, uh, I, I think what's at the heart of this passage is, is God is telling us how to truly worship him. I mean, it's, it's in the context of fasting, right? And so uh, what Isaiah is talking about is he, he's saying you're, you're going through this kind of ritual fast um, of going through the, the, the rituals that are involved with repentance, right? Of, of putting on sackcloth and ashes, of um, denying yourself uh, before the Lord. But you're... He's calling attention to the fact that the, the behaviors of the people of Israel are not in keeping with repentance. They're not in keeping with um, turning to the Lord. And um, so the people are praying and they're fasting and they're complaining because God is not answering their prayers. And so God is saying, look, this is how you are to truly worship me. Um, this is how you are to fast. This is how, uh, and, and if you do these things, then you will see uh, restoration in your land. Um, and so uh, in seminary, um, I, I lived with two guys. We moved into downtown Lexington. Um, and Jeff and Billy, Jeff was from Australia, had a really cool uh, accent. Um, and Billy uh, had no accent, and there was nothing really uh, attractive about him. We called him Billy Goat Gruff because uh, his personality was just, he just kind of looked like that all the time. Um, but Billy was a really special person. He, uh, he had built relationships with um, a lot of the homeless men in downtown Lexington. And um, we, we went and, and moved into this little house. Um, it was down the street. It was just a block from the YMCA. And... Uh, we, two times while we lived down there, we took in uh, homeless guys to live with us. And, and um, one of the guys' names was, uh, we called him Crazy Scott. And uh, Scott uh, wore this headband, this red, uh, I don't know, handkerchief on his head, uh, and a um, jean jacket and uh, pants. He had no shirt. Uh, he was really skinny, had a really hairy chest that stuck out through the jean jacket, um, and he he basically wore that all the time. In the winter in Kentucky or in the summer, he, it's, it's the same outfit for Scott. Um, so Scott, he came, and the, the first night he stayed with us, the, the morning that I, the, he, he stayed on the couch, I woke up, I went to the, to the bathroom, like we always do, first thing in the morning, and... Uh, in the garbage can was all of the toilet paper. 
and I'm not talking about like all the toilet paper on the roll, it's like all the toilet paper in the house is like four or five rolls of toilet paper that is just like stacked up this high in the garbage can. And I was like, okay, that's different. Uh, and then I go to, you know, go to take a shower and I pull back the shower curtain and there's all of our silverware. Yeah, that, that was a good reaction. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. I was like, why is all the silverware in our shower? <laughs> Okay, and so I, I don't take a shower. Uh, I go around and I'm like, I'm gonna make, I'm just, I'm just gonna make a cup of coffee. And when I go to the coffee pot's all like rearranged, like instead of the coffee pot being like down, you know, where it's supposed to be, like it's, it's sitting up on top of the coffee pot. And like there's just different stuff in the kitchen that's rearranged. And, um, and I was like, I, I talked to Billy later and I was like, Billy, I don't, you know, we'd had a guy stay before with us for about a month, and uh, it was a much different situation. Uh, and uh, I was like, Billy, I, I just don't know about Scott. We um, we sat down, like Scott and I had breakfast that morning, and uh, I was getting to know him and just asking him about himself and, you know, asking him how he got to, got to Lexington, and he was telling me the story of how... Um, you know, he was a he was a NHL hockey player, and that he had he had played years ago for the Minnesota Stars before they moved to Dallas and became the Dallas Stars. And um, he told me that he had you know uh, he had all this money, um, and that uh, the man just wouldn't let him have his money, and that if he could get his money, he wouldn't be homeless. And um, and I just kind of, you know, smiled and lied and said, Scott, I'm glad that you're with us and, you know, that you can, she can be here. And, um, but I had this, I had a conversation with Billy afterwards and I was just like, Billy, I just, I just, I don't know. Do you really trust this guy? Like, he, he really does seem like crazy. Like, I just, I don't understand all the stuff that he's doing to our house and like these stories that he's telling just seem completely strange and odd and and uh, so I kind of emotionally not physically d distanced myself but emotionally kind of distanced myself from Scott but but Billy didn't um, and those things that like Billy really listened to Scott and he started to um, kind of explore some of the things that that Scott had been saying and so um, he did go uh, with Scott to try to figure out where all this money was that he had. And it, it turned out that um, Scott had a diagnosis, a, a mental health diagnosis. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but he uh, received disability checks. And um, one of the conditions um, of his disability was that he had to have uh, someone to help him oversee his financial accounts. Um, he had to have kind of somebody to report to and usually in those situations uh, you'd have a case manager but but Scott had kind of burned through case managers and burned through relationships. Um, but he was telling the truth. He had over $10,000 in the bank that the man wouldn't let him have because he didn't have uh, a qualifying supervisor. Um, so Billy became that for him. He went through the paperwork to become uh, 
to, to help uh, Scott oversee the money he had. Um, Billy helped Scott get a place to stay at the, at the Y just down the street from us so that he could go check on him regularly. Um, and really, Billy followed up with Scott over a long period of time, helped him get on um, medication, uh, and Scott really turned things around um, and became much more functional, uh, much more healthy. Um, and it was all birthed out of this trusting relationship that I think is what's described here in, in Isaiah 58. Um, when it says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps of the yoke, to let the press go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Um, God intends for us to be in relationship with one another, right? When, uh, when Jesus was asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? He, his, his answer was not, um, you know, they're all equally important, Right? He, he actually gave an answer, right? which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in the story of, you know, the story he goes on to tell that the neighbor is one who, again, is kind of beaten up, left for dead on the side of the road, naked, right? Um, and it's, uh, and yet the, the good Samaritan comes, comes by and establishes a relationship with him, right? builds trust with him, uh, takes care of him, takes, takes him under his wing. Um, there was a, there's a couple of books, all of them about um, three to six hundred pages long, uh, that I read a couple of months ago. I kind of devoured them. And um, they're not religious books. They're not Christian books. Um, they're written by a guy named Robert Putnam, who is a Harvard uh, professor, um, who's written on this idea of um, social capital. Uh, so the first book that he wrote was a book called um, Bowling Alone. Uh, and then the second one was a book called Better Together. Uh, and then I forget the name of the third one. Um, but I, I encourage you guys to, uh, to pick up one of his books um, and, uh, in, and read it because he, he writes on this idea of, of social capital, which is basically that he says that relationships have value. You know, just like um, in, in a capitalistic society, we, we, money is kind of this very influential and important part of exchange that we have between people that, that relationships have um, a lot of value and, and uh, he talks about how since the, since the 60s our um, social capital has really decreased significantly and so let me tell you a couple of the, let me kind of explain it a little bit. He, he talks about how um, kind of before the civil rights movement even though that we were racially segregated, um, we were not uh, segregated along um, class lines, that the people who were wealthy and people who were poor lived together. Um, and he, he gives a couple of examples of the importance of that. Um, he talks about two kinds of 
of social capital. One's called bonding social capital. And so that's the idea that like those people who are most like us are the ones that we tend to go to during times of crisis, times of need, right? So uh, example, when I got, I got hurt in, in college, I, I had to se severely broke my arm, had to have surgery. So who do I call? I call my parents. I call those people, the people who are closest to me to help take care of me in, in time, times of need. Um, and so that's what bonding social capital does, is, is, is that it, it, it helps us, uh, it gives us strength, right? Um, and then he talks about bridging social capital, and bridging social capital is um, relationships we have that peop with people who aren't like us and, and, and that cross class barriers. So people, uh, it's, it's basically what this passage is describing right here, right? People who are wealthy and people who are poor who have relationships together. And he talks about how it's through this bridging social capital that we have upward mobility. Um, and, and he gives an example of a kid that he went to high school with who grew up poor. His, neither of his parents had been to college. Um, they had kind of working class jobs. Um, and this young man that was a friend of his uh, had an opportunity to go to college. He had really good grades, um, but didn't have obviously the money to go and didn't know, uh, didn't even know how to apply and so how to apply to college. So uh, a pastor in their neighborhood took this young man under his wing and basically just took him through the process of how to apply for financial aid and helped him to get his paperwork together and helped him to make the application. And, and then periodically um, throughout the time that he was in college, the pastor kind of reached out to him to check on him and just see how he was doing and to encourage him. And, um, and the, that young man points back to the pastor as one of the primary reasons that enabled him to get through college. He ended up going into the ministry um, and his life situation improved. Um, and Putnam goes on to talk about how, through through a number for a number of reasons, how um, that type of uh, uh, occurrence, that kind of relationship, is becoming um, less and less real in our world today, and that we're becoming uh, even more and more segregated, right, uh, across. Uh, not only across racial lines, but across class lines. So that, um, you know, it's very common for me uh, when I'm talking to, to people um, who've grown up in a neighborhood like Dean Hampton and, and who've done better for themselves. It's, it's very rare that you find somebody who's interested in moving back into a community like that. In fact, like the, the line I hear often is like, that's, it's a one-way street. Right, out of the neighborhood, you don't go back. Um, but I do think that there's a place for uh, maintaining these relationships that cross class class bonds, and that that we can see this yoke of oppression lifting uh, when we do that. When we pursue relationships, real relationships with people who are different than us, um, and and uh, where we. Um, where we build bonds of trust, um, and you know, so so in my own situation with Scott, like 
I, I, uh, I liked the idea of having homeless guys come live with us. I mean, it sounded like the right thing to do, but like when we actually did it and put, our, put myself in that situation, like when Scott put all that silverware in the shower, man, like my trust was broken. Like that's crazy, dude. <laughs> you know? uh, and so like it, it, it takes perseverance and relationship. It takes what Billy was willing to do, which was to sit and to listen. And really listen to Scott and to start um, pursuing some of the things that he said and to, to find um, to find the truth in in the craziness and um, and to find the, the person behind the illness right and to connect with that person and to not let the mental illness um, become a label or a way of viewing Scott or distancing ourselves emotionally from Scott. Um, and it, it, makes, it makes a real difference. Um, being intentional in relationships with people who are not like us and, and loving them, putting ourselves out there, it makes a real difference. It really does have the power to change society. Um, and so I, I want to encourage you like, to put yourself out there. Um, to take risk in relationship like that, um, and to to not feel like you have to do it perfectly, like but but to learn from your mistakes and um, not to do it alone. Like it was really helpful for me to kind of pursue some of those things with Billy and with Jeff, and where we could talk about it, and where Billy and I had a relationship to where I could tell him, man, this is I'm, I'm really struggling with this. Like, um, this is really stretching me, and I'm, I'm not sure, like, my heart's all in it. And, uh, and, and for Billy to, to still love me in that and not to judge me or to label me or to tell me I was weak or whatever, but just to kind of um, keep persevering and, and through that kind of demonstrating for me um, grace and love and, 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 and what, what real relationship can look like. And... Um, so I just want to encourage you, like, I, looking back on, on my life, like, I see um, SOS as being a time that kind of exposed me to uh, relationships that I, I wouldn't have had a chance to pursue otherwise. And it, it showed me um, people that, like, I really began to value and to trust and to love in a way that I never would have had an opportunity to do so if it hadn't been for a ministry like SOS. And, and that was just, that was a seed, right? Like that started there and has kind of progressed and grown um, to my time in seminary, to moving back into Binghampton. And uh, like I, I treasure the relationships that I have in the neighborhood and I don't see the life that I live now as a sacrifice. Like it's, um, it's my life is rich and it's enriched by, um, by the relationships that I have with people in the community and the things that they've shown me and taught me and how we've grown together. And I do see, like, I, I, I see a day coming that, like, if we can get over this idea of fear and safety and really pursue the things of God, like, I can see real change and real restoration as a potential in our our community. Um, 
And so I just I want to encourage you to pursue that, to pursue the things of God, and to pursue real relationships with people who are different than us. So let me let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for SOS and for the men and women that are gathered in this room. And Lord, I just um, I pray that you would give them your grace, your love, your mercy, your kindness, Lord. I pray that they would remember today that um, your spirit lives within them uh, and is giving them strength, uh, not only strength to do their work, but strength to love. Um, and Lord, I pray that... Um, they would take up this mantle of uh, entering into relationships with people who are different than them. Um, Lord, whether that's with people who are poor or people who are rich, um, Lord, that they would enter into those relationships um, without judgment and that they would seek to build trust um, and that they would, uh, Lord, we, we hope that, that love and reconciliation would come forth from that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.